Hi there. This is Jennifer Passarello from Circa19XX.com. Welcome to Circa Sunday Night, the podcast. think of Circa 19XX land as time travel for the imagination, where we explore all kinds of glamorous and beautiful old things from the early part of the 20th century. So go put on your fringe and your long rope of pearls, and let's Charleston our way to Dreamsville. It's the cure for insomnia. It's Circa Sunday Night. Hello there. Hey, this is amazing. I can hardly believe it. This is episode number 15 of Circa Sunday Night. Now, I know you're thinking, wow, Jennifer, number 15, big deal, right? Well, it sort of is a big deal, honestly, because at the beginning of this little adventure, I knew exactly zero about putting a podcast together. I made my mind up that I was going to learn how to do it, And the goal in the beginning was to produce one show. And that one episode took forever to produce. You know what? Actually, all of these episodes take forever to produce. So it takes about 40 to 50 hours to put together one one hour episode of Circa Sunday Night. Anyway, my big goal was originally to put together one show. And then the goal expanded to doing five shows and then 10 shows, and now here we are, the big 15. Now, notice that I'm talking about quantity here, not quality. Quality, that's a different goal. (laughs) Perhaps I'll set that as a goal for 2021. Right now, it's just about how many of these episodes I I can produce, that I can tie a bow on, and then send out into the world. Here's something I still don't know how to do. I don't know how to promote this show. No idea. My audience is small, so if you're listening, you're part of an elite group. Now, each episode does get a few more listeners, and I do have listeners from all over the world, which is kind of exciting. But honestly, I don't know how all of you are finding this show. Yeah, I'm not kidding when I say I have no idea how to promote a podcast. And you know what? I don't know if I really want to. This isn't my job, so I am not looking to this podcast as a way to have a career or anything like that. I have a job, but it is kind of fun just having a special little group, just a small group of us that can get together, hang out on Sunday nights, and forget all the turmoil of the world just for a little bit. So that leads me to what's next for this season. Right now, I only have one more episode of Circa Sunday Night planned for 2020. That would be episode number 16, which will air in two weeks, uh, two weeks from tonight. That's probably going to be my last episode, but even as I say those words, you know, there's always a possibility that I may throw another show together. You know, if I hit upon a topic and I get really whipped up about it, who knows? But my plan right now is to wrap up Season 1, 2020, with Episode number 16. I need a little break. I need a break to think up some new ideas for Season 2. There's some things that I need to improve, some new things that I want to learn. I also need some fresh ideas, I think. So I'm going to take the Christmas month off, December and January. So... At least the way I'm planning it right now, Season 2 would start in February. I will be talking a lot more about this next time in Episode 16, but just thought I'd throw it out there that I'm going to be wrapping up Season 1 pretty quickly here. So why don't we have a little chat? What's new with you? What's going on in your life? Well, let's see. What have I been up to lately? Hmm. Well, a friend of mine and I took a little road trip the other day. We drove to Ozark, Missouri for some antiquing. Now, 
If you've listened to this podcast before, you know that I split my time between Kansas City, Missouri and Springfield, Missouri. So Springfield is about three hours south of Kansas City. My main home base is in Kansas City, but I also have a little cottage in Springfield. So I go there about every month or so. And in the Springfield area, there are really great antique shops. And then if you go a little south of Springfield, there's a small little suburb called Ozark. It's right, you know, as you're getting into the Ozark Mountain area. And they have a really great little little cluster, I guess you could say, of antique malls right off the main highway. Now, one of my favorites that we went to is Valley 65 Antique Mall. But we also went someplace new that I was able to try out for the first time, the Spring Creek Tea Room. Now, as I said, Valley 65 is a favorite of mine. I've purchased several items there since I discovered that place. Gosh, when was that? I guess it was about a year ago. But, you know, I'm I'm slowly trying to furnish my little cottage in Springfield, and a lot of the items that I have in there came from Valley 65. Every time I go there, I know that I'm going to find some things. But if you are shopping in that area for antiques, one thing you have to know going in is that you're going to find a great selection, but not great bargains. So if you listen to the episode a couple of uh, episodes ago, that was what, episode 13, 14? Uh, no, it must have been episode 13. I did a little show from Lakeland, Florida and went to the Lakeland Antique Mall, I thought their prices were much better than the prices that I see in the Springfield area. But the selection is so great. So what you gain in selection, you lose a little bit in terms of price. But if you're looking for something in particular, chances are are a little better in Springfield that you'll find it. So, you know, I guess you, you get what you pay for. Now, on this particular trip, My friend and I, when we went to Valley 65, we actually split up. So it's a pretty, pretty good sized little mall. We split up. I went left. She went right. And then we met up in the middle where the checkout area is, where the register is. And, uh, yeah, when we met up, we both had stuff. So my friend found a beautiful vintage print. It's like a medallion print. So it was round. And it had a big, beautiful round fl- uh, frame. And it was, it was beautiful. It looked just like her style. So had I seen that in the booth before she picked it up, I would have thought, oh my gosh, my friend needs to see that because she would love it. And of course she did love it. Now I found something too, though. I found a really darling little old side table. You know, the kind of table that you might put next to a a nice cozy chair. And it had flowers painted on the top and then at the top of each leg. Very girly, very feminine and pretty. You know, it actually made me think of Elsie DeWolf. You might remember Elsie DeWolf from episode, uh, gosh, what was that? 11, episode 11 called Chintz and Mirrors. I talked about Elsie DeWolf. And one of the things that she was really into was painted furniture with floral motifs. So I think old Elsie would probably approve of my darling little side table. So from Valley 65, it was off to the Spring Creek Tea Room for some antiquing and lunch. So this was my first visit to the tea room. It will not be my last. It was fabulous. We were both over the moon about this place. Now, the only reason why I knew about it is because my boss actually told me about it. She said, Jennifer, you have got to go to this this Spring Creek Tea Room. She had been there. She really liked it. And she said, Jennifer, this has your name written all over it. (laughs) So I told my friend and we went there. And what's really fun about it is it's a, a small antique mall loaded with cool stuff. But there's also a little restaurant there, too. And the restaurant was fantastic. Now, my friend and I have been to these kinds of restaurants before. So a lot of times you'll find a restaurant embedded within an antique mall. And it's been my experience that the food is actually pretty good at those places. So they tend to serve things like quiche, little gourmet sandwiches, soups of the day, salads, and, you know, desserts. Well, 
that's exactly what the Spring Creek Tea Room had too. We are huge quiche fans, so we saw that on the menu and we were very excited about trying the quiche. Unfortunately, we were there on Saturday and they only serve quiche on Friday. But didn't matter anyway because we got a fabulous meal. We both got sandwiches and we had salads and then, of course, dessert. So they had this amazing assortment of homemade cakes and pies, and they were fantastic. Oh, so good. But, of course, the shopping was really cool there, too. And we both ended up with some treasures from the Spring Creek Tea Room as well. So what I bought, I got a couple of really interesting little items. The first item that I got was this little... um. Gosh, how would I describe this? It's like a it's like a little sign holder or a, a very small placard holder that I think might have been used in a retail store. You know, like a, a little sign that might show a price or maybe sale, you know, maybe it would it would indicate that some items are on sale, but it was old and brass and it was exactly the right size to put an antique postcard in. So it's a great display for antique postcards. And I collect antique postcards and I'm always looking for new ways to display them. So I couldn't pass that up. That was pretty fun. And then the more unusual item that I I purchased was a tall pedestal ashtray. Now, I know you may be thinking, Jennifer, why did you buy an ashtray? Well, I bought it for when I'm smoking my cigars. (laughs) Okay, no, I don't smoke cigars. I don't smoke at all. But this ashtray, it's not maybe obviously an ashtray. My friend said, oh, I don't think people would know that this is an ashtray. I mean, it's clearly an ashtray, but it's so beautiful that I thought it would make a really pretty drink rest. You know, that you could just sit next to a chair. So it's wrought iron. It was very dirty, very gross and dirty. I had to do a lot of cleanup when I got home. But it's it's black wrought iron, but then there's a little floral dish inside. And so that's where you could use that as kind of like a coaster or something to put a drink on. So it was just too pretty. I couldn't pass it up. So what a fun place. I cannot wait to go back. If you happen to be in the Ozark, Missouri area, I strongly recommend the Spring Creek Tea Room. Okay, we also went to a number of other places that day. It was a full day of shopping, but I think I think those things were the highlights. Okay, well, so now let's get back to tonight's show. Well, I couldn't settle on a topic for tonight. I had so many things spinning around in my mind that I just decided to throw together a bunch of stuff. And the result is our second mystery melange. Now, you might remember that I did another mystery melange uh, episode a while back. Now, what is a melange? Well, it's like a salad, right? It's, it's a salad that's made up of all sorts of things. That's basically what we have here tonight in our show. It's a mystery because I'm not going to tell you in advance what's in the show. And you know what? If I'm honest with you, I don't even know exactly what's going to be in the show tonight. So I guess we'll make those discoveries together. Fasten your seatbelt, keep your arms and legs inside the car at all times, and uh, adjust your safety helmet. Our time machine is ready to launch. Let's go.
Did you like that snappy little tune? Well, that was Let's Swing It by Ray Noble and his orchestra. Actually, it was Ray Noble and the Freshmen, and that's from 1935. A movie has just been released in the U.S. that I am dying to see, Radium Girls. Now, unfortunately, it appears to be in limited release because I can't find it anywhere in the Kansas City area. But I do know that it is playing somewhere because I've been reading all of these reviews that have just come out about this film. So I'm wondering, have you seen it in your town? If so, you might want to check it out. Now, warning though, it's a sad story. Have you ever heard about the Radium Girls? Well, I actually had. I'd read about them a few years ago and it's kind of a downer. Let me pull up an article that I just saw on uh, from National Public Radio. And, yes, here it is right here. Okay, so this is an article about the Radium Girls. This is from 2014, so it was not about the film. It was just about the Radium Girls as a, as a historical story. And let's see who this is by. This is by a woman named Rebecca Hersher. Here's what she had to say about it. In the early 1920s, the hot new gadget was a wristwatch with a glow-in-the-dark dial. Made possible by the magic of radium, bragged one advertisement. And it did seem magical. Radium was the latest miracle substance, an element that glowed and fizzed. Salesmen promised that it could extend people's lives. It could pump up their sex drive and make women more beautiful. Doctors used it to treat everything from colds to cancer. In the 1920s, a young working-class woman could land a job working with the miracle substance. Radium wristwatches were manufactured right here in America at the U.S. Radium Corporation. They were hiring dial people to paint the tiny numbers onto watch faces for about five cents a watch. They became known as the Radium Girls. To get the numbers small enough, New hires were taught to do something called lip pointing. After painting each number, they were to put the tip of the paintbrush between their lips to sharpen it. Twelve numbers per watch, upwards of 200 watches per day, and with every digit, the girls swallowed a little bit of radium. Apparently, they had so much radium in their bodies that they actually glowed in the dark. By the mid-1920s, Dial painters were falling ill by the dozens, afflicted with horrific diseases. The radium they had swallowed was eating their bones from the inside. There was one woman who went to the dentist for a toothache, and when he went to pull her tooth out, he pulled out her entire jaw. Then there were girls whose legs broke underneath them. Their spines collapsed. Dozens of women died. At a factory in New Jersey, the women sued the U.S. Radium Corporation for poisoning, and they won. But many of them ended up using the money to pay for their own funerals. Wow! In all, by 1927, more than 50 women had died as a direct result of radium paint poisoning. 
Goodness, and you think your job is bad, right? Well, now while we're on this topic, I should mention that the girls employed by U.S. Radium were not the only ones who suffered from radium poisoning. Here's another terrible story. We're just full of terrible stories tonight. This one is about Eben Byers. He was a U.S. amateur golf champion of 1906. Let me read his bio from Wikipedia. The son of industrialist Alexander Byers. Even Byers was educated at St. Paul's School and Yale College, where he earned a reputation as an athlete, and for having an overactive libido. Hmm, interesting. He was the first U.S. or no, not the first, but he was the U.S. amateur golf champion of 1906, after finishing as runner-up in 1902 and 1903. Byers eventually became the chairman of the Gerard Iron Company. Which had been started by his father, in 1927, Byers injured his arm falling from a railway sleeping berth. For the persistent pain, a doctor suggested he take Radithor, a patent medicine manufactured by William J. A. Bailey. Now Bailey was a Harvard University dropout who falsely claimed to be a doctor of medicine. He had become rich from the sale of Radithor. Radithor was a solution of radium in water. Which he claimed stimulated the endocrine system. He offered physicians a kickback on each dose that they prescribed. Byers began taking several doses of Radithor per day, believing that it gave him a toned-up feeling. But he stopped in October of 1930. This is after taking some 1,400 doses. When that effect faded, he lost weight. He had headaches, and his teeth began to fall out. Now, in 1931, the Federal Trade Commission asked him to testify about his experience, but by then he was too sick to travel. So the commission sent a lawyer to take his statement at his home. The lawyer reported that Byers' whole upper jaw, excepting two front teeth and most of his lower jaw, had been removed, and that all the remaining bone tissue of his body was disintegrating. Holes were actually forming in his skull. Gosh, what a way to go! Goodness. Well, his death on March thirty first, nineteen thirty two, was attributed to radiation poisoning, using the terminology of the time, but it was due to cancers, not acute radiation syndrome. This is according to Wikipedia. Now, Byers' death received much publicity, and it heightened awareness of the dangers of radioactive cures. The Federal Trade Commission issued an order against Bailey's business to cease and desist from various representations theretofore made by them as to the therapeutic value of Radithor, and from representing that the product Radithor is harmless. But get this: Bailey later founded the Radium Institute in New York, and he marketed a radioactive belt clip, a radioactive paperweight. And a mechanism which purported to make water radioactive. Oh my! Well, we are traversing into dark corners of circa 19xx land with these stories, aren't we? Now, I don't think even Byers shows up as a character in the film Radium Girls. I mean, I'm assuming he doesn't. That film is essentially about the lawsuit those young women brought against U.S. Radium. Oh goodness! Well, I I can't wait to see that film. So if this is playing in your town, and you go see it, send me an email, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about it. In the meantime, since we can't actually talk about the film in in very much detail here, why don't we listen to the trailer? Guess we'll just have to make do with that. So here is the trailer for the new film Radium Girls. Welcome to American Radium. You are paid one cent per dial. Your work suffers, Miss Cavallo. The eight looks like a fat toddler. This month's top painter, Josephine Cavallo. Will you help me practice my feeling spaces? I'm studying. I have to be ready to be discovered and go to Hollywood. I want to find a tomb like Tut's, and I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> Will you be ready in five minutes, Joe? Don't come in, please, Joe. 
I don't know what's wrong with her. I'm dizzy. <clears throat> My joints ache. I lost a tooth and two others are loose. Do you know what's wrong with me? Absolutely nothing. You're healthy as a horse. Where do you work? American Radium. Your dial painters. We believe that exposure to radium can cause devastating tissue damage. <laughs> radium is good for you. Everyone knows that. What does this mean for us? We take American Radium down. There's a doctor that can test if your bones are radioactive. Jesse, you sound crazy. I'm not losing my job over this. I'm scared. I'm not going back in there. I'm looking for Bessie and Josephine Babalo. They did a study years ago. They own it. Own research. That's absurd. It's like owning gravity. American Radium is denying the harmful effects of radium. All they have to do is run out the clock. They could drag this out for years. We don't have years. You'll never win. I'm doing it. No matter what. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Everyone put down your brushes. Radium is poison. Bessie, you're trespassing. I won't abandon you. They're trying to silence you. They must be stopped. You really think you can beat American Radium? I am going to make American Radium pay for what they've done. Tell them now! Get Joe! Get Joe out of here right now! Okay, married ladies, this one is for you. If you've been married for a while, and you have become a detestable shrew as a result, <laughs> the January 15, 1911 issue of the New York Times has an explanation, and here it is. Why is it that girls who are considered sweet-tempered and agreeable before marriage often develop into arbitrary and self-assertive brides? This question was asked by a mother-in-law, and it's worthy of comment. It may be urged that a girl before marriage set a watch upon her lips and try to be agreeable. The unmarried girl has much more to gain by pleasant personal qualities than a married woman has, for unless girls make themselves pleasant and obliging, they're apt to be left out when parties are being arranged and to be abandoned to their solitary fate by those who would be their allies. Since girls are not expected to return as much hospitality as they receive, they must of necessity depend upon their personal qualities for invitations. On the other hand, a married woman who gives parties gets asked in return, whether she's agreeable or not. Again, the married woman is apt to foster an exaggerated idea of her own importance as the chatelaine of her house. Before marriage, she had to get her mother's consent to most of her proceedings, to the invitation she accepted, and the friends she asked to the house. The sudden freedom from restraint and the indulgence of a husband are apt to spoil her character and make her disagreeable to her relatives, especially to those on his side of the house and immensely patronizing to her old friends, particularly those who have remained unmarried. Another reason why some girls' tempers are spoiled by marriage lies in the trials and annoyances to which a girl with a number of relatives is subjected. It is hard to please critical persons, and relatives seem particularly addicted to criticism of a bride's demeanor, her housekeeping, and her domestic arrangements. But in spite of undoubted provocation to ill temper, the wise girls should first think of the effect that it'll have on her husband before she allows herself to become disagreeable, instead of the tactfully charming girl that he courted. Ideals and illusions are fragile things and need care. A girl should keep her husband under her spell. And now we know. A life lesson from the New York Times, 1911. Our time machine just took us to 1911 with that New York Times article. Now we're going to move the dial forward a bit in our time machine, and we're going to stop in 1917. But this time we're not going to be in America. We're going to be in the United Kingdom. More specifically, we're venturing to the village of Cottingley 
in West Yorkshire. It's there that two girls perpetrated a hoax so charming that people may have wanted very much for it to be true. Among the believers was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries. So what was the hoax? Well, Frances Griffiths, who was nine years old at the time, and her 16-year-old cousin, Elsie Wright, captured photographic evidence of the existence of woodland fairies. Isn't this unbelievable? You never know what we're going to cover here in Circa 19XX land. Proof at last! Fairies really and truly exist. (laughs) Now, I have to say, the photos were quite convincing. Even today, I just think they're mesmerizing. And honestly, I think they're lovely. Now, yes, of course, I will have these pictures out on the show board for tonight's episode. But each of the pictures shows the girls engaging with these fairies. Now, the fairies would only appear, they said, when no one else was around. There were five photos, the first of which that you might have seen before because it's it's fairly famous. And that one is of Frances sitting very prettily. And, and she's, you know, she's got this very pretty little look on her face. And she's gazing at the camera. But in the foreground, there are four little fairies that are dancing in front of her. The fairies look to be about the size of her hand, I guess. I'm not sure how big that would be, but they look in the picture like they're about the size of her hand. Now, there were other photos, too. And the titles of these photos sound as if they're straight out of a fairy tale. So the other four were Elsie with a winged gnome, Frances and the leaping fairy, fairy offering posy of harebells, Now, harebells are these little purple flowers. I had to look that up because I didn't know. And then the last one, fairies and their sunbath. The girls captured these magical moments with Elsie's father's camera, which they had borrowed. Now, he was an amateur photographer, and he'd even set up his own dark room in their house. He's the one who developed the first photo. But when he saw it, he just dismissed it. He assumed they were cardboard cutouts or, you know, something, because Elsie had some artistic abilities. He just figured she was being creative and trying to have some fun with the camera. When they borrowed his camera again, they took more pictures with the fairies, and again he dismissed them as a prank. But Elsie's mother, she was convinced that they were authentic. So she brought those photos to the attention of members of the the Theosophical Society in 1919. She was a member of that group, and it was at that point that the photos started getting widespread attention, eventually capturing the imagination of Conan Doyle. Here's what he wrote in his book about this. He he actually wrote a book. It was called The Coming of the Fairies, and here's what he had to say about these photos. The elves are a compound of the human and the butterfly, while the gnome has more of the moth. This may be merely the result of underexposure of the negative and dullness of the weather. Perhaps a little gnome is really of the same tribe, but represents an elderly male, while the elves are romping young women. Now, Most observers of fairy life have reported, however, that there are separate species, varying very much in size, appearance, and locality. The wood fairy, the water fairy, the fairy of the plains, etc. Can these be thought forms? Okay, let me stop right here for a moment. Let me step out of the Conan Doyle piece to talk about what a thought form is. I didn't know, so I had to look it up. From what I can tell, this was a a theosophical belief that your thoughts can manifest themselves into observable images. In the literature, I found reference to thought forms as the visible substance of thought. Applied to the Cottingley fairies, Conan Doyle appears to be considering whether or not You know, these fairies are merely a projection captured on film of the girls' thoughts about fairies. Interesting theory. Okay, so back to Conan Doyle's book. Can these be thought forms? The fact that the fairies in the pictures are so like our conventional idea of fairies is in favor of that idea. But if they move rapidly, have musical instruments and so forth, then it's impossible to talk of thought form, uh, thought forms, a term that suggests something vague and intangible. In a sense, we are all thought forms, since we can only be perceived through the senses. 
But these little figures would seem to have an objective reality as we have ourselves. If they are conventional, it may be that fairies have really been seen in every generation, and so some correct description of them has been retained. I must confess that after months of thought, I'm unable to get the true bearings of this event. One or two consequences are obvious. The experiences of children will be taken more seriously. Cameras will be forthcoming. Other well-authenticated cases will come along. These little folk who appear to be our neighbors, with only some small difference of vibration to separate us, will become familiar. The thought of them, even when unseen, will add a charm to every brook and valley and give romantic interest to every country walk. The recognition of their existence will jolt the material 20th century mind out of its heavy ruts in the mud and will make it admit that there is a glamour and a mystery to life. Let's take another look at that last sentence that he wrote there. The recognition of the fairy's existence will jolt the material 20th century mind out of its heavy ruts in the mud and will make it admit that there is glamour and a mystery to life. That, in a nutshell, I think explains why a man of Conan Doyle's stature would so willingly believe a hoax perpetrated by children. I mean, you can see in just that small, small excerpt of his book that I just read, he took this very seriously. I mean, he took sort of this clinical approach to examining these photos. He wanted so badly, I think, this existence of something fantastic and otherworldly. Now, he was an active spiritualist, he was a Freemason, and he had an interest in the paranormal. So that gives us a little bit more context there. So what about the hoax? Well, the girls always insisted that the fairies were real. Well into adulthood, they were making that claim. One of the things that made the photos convincing was that there appeared to be some blurring around the figures. That would indicate that the fairies were moving at the time that they were photographed. Cardboard cutouts wouldn't move of their own volition, would they? Well, they might, if the wind was blowing. And, incidentally, that is exactly what happened. <laughs> the girls admitted that the photos were fake in the 1980s. So here's what Wikipedia has to say about this. In 1983, the cousins admitted in an article published in the magazine The Unexplained that the photographs had been faked although both maintained that they really had seen fairies. Elsie had copied illustrations of dancing girls from a popular children's book at the time, Princess Mary's Gift Book, which was published in 1914, and then she drew wings on them. They said that they had then cut them out in cardboard, and they supported them with hat pins, disposing of their props in the beck. The beck was sort of like this little creek area once the photographs had been taken. But the cousins disagreed about the fifth and final photograph, which Doyle, in his The Coming of the Fairies book, described in this way. Seated on the upper left-hand edge, with wing well displayed, is an undraped fairy, apparently considering whether it's time to get up or not. An earlier riser of more mature age is seen on the right, possessing abundant hair and wonderful wings. Her slightly denser body can be glimpsed within her fairy dress. Now, Elsie maintained it was fake, just like all the others. But Francis insisted that it was genuine. In an interview given in the early 1980s, Francis said this, It was a wet Saturday afternoon, and we were just mooching about with our cameras, and Elsie had nothing prepared. I saw these fairies building up in the grasses, and just aimed the camera and took a photograph. Both Francis and Elsie claimed to have taken the fifth photograph. In a letter published in the Times newspaper on April 9, 1983, Jeffrey Crawley explained the discrepancy by suggesting that the photograph was an unintended double exposure of fairy cutouts in the grass, and thus both ladies can be quite sincere in believing that each took it. In a 1985 interview on Yorkshire Television's Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers, Elsie said that she and Francis were too embarrassed to admit the truth after fooling Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes. Two village kids and a brilliant man like Conan Doyle? Well, we could only keep quiet. This is what Francis had said in the interview. 
She said, I never even thought of it as being a fraud. It was just Elsie and I having a bit of fun. And I can't understand to this day why they were taken in. They wanted to be taken in. I love this story. It would be super cool to discover that fairies really exist. Now, in case you're wondering, no, I don't believe fairies exist. (laughs) But it is fun to think about. Now, there is more to this story, so if you'd like to explore the whole mystery of it in more depth, I'm going to link an episode of one of my favorite podcasts in tonight's show notes. Podcast is Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, and it devotes an entire episode to this story. So go and take a listen. Isn't that lovely? That pretty music is the original score for Charlie Chaplin's 1936 film, Modern Times. You probably recognize that melody. It's the song Smile, and it's one of my favorites. Now, this comes from a scene in that film in which Chaplin and his love interest, and by the way, this love interest was in the film and in real life, Paulette Goddard, they share this little dream of a pretty love nest. So Goddard's character, Ellen, is very poor, and she's on the run from the police for stealing, um, I think it was food. I think, if I remember correctly, I think she was stealing a loaf of bread or something. And Chaplin, in his little tramp character, is out of work. Well, times are very tough for both of them, but they find love all the same. And one day, while they're, they're kind of sitting on a lawn, They see this happily married couple kiss each other goodbye for the day, and then the wife goes skipping along back into their comfy home, and Chaplin starts to imagine that he and Ellen live in a home like that, too. Now, honestly, I'm not a big fan of modern times. It's a silent film, and that might lead you to believe that it's older than it really is. Apparently, Chaplin had considered making this a sound picture. But he ultimately decided that something would be lost if the audience actually heard his little tramp character speak. So he developed it as a silent film. I think this was the last film in which he played the little tramp. So he played that character in several films. I think this was the last one. Now, for some context, two other films produced that same year have been referenced in other episodes of Circa Sunday Night. These were not silent films. My favorite Gene Harlow film, Libel Lady, came out in 1936, that same year, and San Francisco from screenwriter Anita Luce, who starred, uh, or that starred Jeanette McDonald and Clark Gable. Well, that came out in 1936 as well. While I'm not a huge Modern Times fan, Smile, as I mentioned, is one of my all-time favorite songs, so I thought, why not profile it in tonight's show? Let's start by taking a look at who wrote it. Charlie Chaplin. That's right. (laughs) The same guy who was in Modern Times, The Little Tramp. Well, he wrote the score as well. Um, He wrote the melody. Alfred Newman arranged it. And then, almost 20 years later, John Turner and Jeffrey Parsons added lyrics. So the lyrics were not there when Charlie Chaplin first introduced this in that film, Modern Times. They came much later. And the lyrics really matter here, in my opinion, because they elevate this sweet, sad little melody to sort of this philosophical idea. The idea that tomorrow will be brighter if you just bear up, keep going, and smile through it all. Okay, so a moment ago... We heard the melody without the lyrics. Now let's take a look at the lyrics without the melody. So here they are. Smile though your heart is aching. Smile even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by 
if you smile. Through your fear and sorrow, smile, and maybe tomorrow you'll see the sun come shining through for you. Light up your face with gladness, hide every trace of sadness. Although a tear may be ever so near, that's the time that you must keep on trying. Smile, what's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile. Oh, how I love that song. It's simple, it's beautiful, and most importantly, it's true, isn't it? Now, you know me, I tend to look at everything through the lens of faith. And when I read those lyrics, whether the lyricist intended this or not, I read this lovely little poem as a call to faith. Faith in tomorrow. Faith that God will see us through. But now there is that line in the lyrics, hide every trace of sadness. Are the writers there telling us to repress our feelings and pretend that everything is okay when it's not? No, I don't read it that way. I read it as a statement that life is what you make it. So you can either fall apart or cling to joy and hope. Now, we can't talk about Smile without also talking about the gentleman who put this song on the map in 1954. Smile was a hit for Nat King Cole. And while it's been covered by a number of other artists over the years, I mean a lot of artists over the years, Cole's version is the one. You know, I have just about every song that Nat King Cole ever recorded in my personal music collection. I'm a huge fan. But when it comes to Smile... Well, I just think his version is a masterpiece. It's a slow, quiet song. And when Cole sings it, it almost feels like, it's almost like he's giving himself a little pep talk. Like he's just crawled through a troubled time and he's urging himself to climb up and out of it. Well, who doesn't need that message from time to time? Okay, so let's hear it. And as you listen, see if you can detect that perfect balance of melancholy and hope that Cole is able to achieve. Smile, though your heart is aching. Smile, even though it's breaking. When there are clouds in the sky, you'll get by. If you smile through your fear and sorrow, smile and maybe tomorrow, you'll see the sun come shining through. For you, light up your face with gladness, hide every trace of sadness, although a tear may be ever so near. That's the time you must keep on trying Smile, what's the use of crying You'll find that life is still worthwhile If you'll just smile on trying Smile what's the use of crying You'll find that life is still worthwhile 
if you just smile. Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. By the way, I believe Nelson Riddle arranged that. There's a lot we could talk about with Nelson Riddle, too, but perhaps we will save that for another time. Anyway, before we leave this wonderful song, I need to call your attention to a more recent cover by the a cappella group Voctive. Now, that's a group that you may not have heard of before, but I follow them out on YouTube because they've done some really fantastic Disney film melodies. And I think we all know that I love a good Disney medal, uh, medley. <laughs> anyway, their version of Smile just recently landed in my YouTube feed, which is actually what gave me the idea to do this segment tonight. I'm going to put a link to their recording in the show notes because while my favorite will always be Nat King Cole's version, I love everything Voctive does and it's definitely worth a listen. So you might want to check them out. And now for something really different. Let me take a moment to apologize in advance for this next segment. (laughs) Now, you know I like to keep things on the light side for this show. We already took a dark turn when we spent some time with the Radium Girls a bit ago. But now we're going to take a step back into another murky corner of Circa 19XX land. I had wanted to feature this next story in a special Halloween episode. Yeah, well, that episode never materialized. I started running out of time, and, well, basically, I just couldn't get it together. So, uh, no Halloween special this year. But this little gem is one that I just couldn't get out of my mind, so I'm going to throw it into our little melange tonight. So, here we go. Have you ever heard the story of Nadine Earls in Lynette, Alabama? No. Well, get this. Okay, so Nadine Earls was born in 1929. She was the oldest daughter of Julian and Alma Earls. She spent much of her young life in doctor's offices because she was born with a cleft lip and she had to undergo surgery and then some speech therapy. Before she was a year old, just prior to her second surgery, she came down with diphtheria. And what's diphtheria? It's generally a contagious upper respiratory disease And in the 1920s, between 100,000 and 200,000 cases of diphtheria and 13,000 to 15,000 deaths due to diphtheria occurred in the United States. Sadly, most of those fatalities were children, so it hit children particularly hard. Now, shortly before Nadine became ill, her father started to build her a playhouse. Unfortunately, She died before he completed it, so she died of diphtheria in 1933. Grief-stricken, her father tore down the playhouse, so it had not been completed, but what had been started, he tore it down, and he started to rebuild it on her gravesite. Can you imagine? Well, contractors ended up finishing it. And then when it was finished, on April 3rd, 1934, which is what would have been Nadine's fifth birthday, they held a birthday party at the playhouse that was attended by 25 children. This is just hard for me to get into my brain. Okay, so they invited 25 children to this grave and this little playhouse, and they played games there. They had birthday cake and ice cream. I mean, it was a regular party, only it was at a gravesite. Wow. There's actually a photograph of that celebration, and apparently it's framed, and it's either on the wall in the playhouse, or it's leaning against a window or something. Anyway, there's a picture, and that picture is online, so I will link it in the show notes if you want to take a look. It's a little bit strange. But anyway, let's talk about the playhouse. It's actually really cute. I mean, if we set aside all the creepiness... It's this pretty little brick house, very tidy, very well-maintained, and inside are some of Nadine's toys. 
Now, I believe there's also a Christmas tree in there. I, I saw a picture where there was a Christmas tree. I'm assuming that tree is up year all year round. She died right before Christmas, so I, I don't know. I'm assuming it's there all the time. But anyway, there's a Christmas tree in there. There's her old tricycle in there. It's rather rusty and old looking, but oh, she has toys, dolls, other things in there. And there are pictures of all of this on the internet. Again, I will put them out on the Pinterest show board for tonight's show. But again, it looks like every little girl's dream of the perfect playhouse, except in addition to the toys, it also contains what is essentially a white marble coffin or a, a sarcophagus, which is where Nadine was laid to rest. The house also has this really cute yard, except <laughs> in the front yard and the side yard, there are headstones for Nadine's parents. So, I mean, honestly, I'm looking at the picture right now and it's just, it's just really surreal. I mean, you know, on the one hand, it's surreal, but then when you think these were real people, and that grief was very real. I mean, these are parents that were devastated by this little girl's death. So um, I'm by no means making fun of the fact that they built this playhouse. It's just so strange. Okay, so on her grave, there's this inscription. Our little daughter, sweetest in the world, little Nadine, April 3rd, 1929, December 18th, 1933. In heaven we hope to meet. Oh, so that's pretty sad. Now, apparently this playhouse grave has attracted visitors from all over the world. As you may know, if you've tuned into this show before, I love touring old houses. So, if I find myself in Alabama, would I stop to see this little playhouse? I don't know that I would make a special trip. I don't know. Maybe if I was driving by, I might make a little a little road stop, you know, and take a look. What about you? Would you go and take a look at this playhouse grave? was doing some research on the old Algonquin Hotel in New York, and in particular the Algonquin Roundtable, when I unearthed a surprising, totally unrelated little remnant from my childhood. When I was a kid, I remember hearing Paul Harvey on the radio featuring these charming little stories about the world. He was such a fixture on the radio at our house over the noon hour that I can't believe I'd forgotten all about him, but I did for decades until I just recently heard him in a recording of a story that he did on the Algonquin. Many of you are probably saying to yourself, who in the world is Paul Harvey? Well, <laughs> he's no longer with us. He died many years ago, but he was a radio broadcaster who, among other things, hosted a daily program called The Rest of the Story. Now, the rest of the story actually began as part of his newscast during World War II, but then decades later, it became a series on ABC radio networks in 1976. So that's where I encountered it. His stories often had kind of a twist or a surprise ending. So each segment featured little-known or forgotten facts on a wide range of topics. You never quite knew what he was going to be talking about from one day to the next. But every time he would tell one of these stories, he would hold back some key element of the story until the end. Then he would conclude the show with this famous tagline, and now you know the rest of the story. Someone described his delivery as telegraphic, and I think that's a really good description. He, he tells these stories in, in clipped phrases with lots of pauses. It's a very distinct style of speaking, but somehow it works. Hearing his voice took me right back to my childhood home in Topeka, Kansas, sitting in the kitchen, listening to Paul Harvey while my mom baked cookies. Good times. Hello, Americans. I'm Paul Harvey. You know what the news is. 
In half a minute, you're going to hear the rest of the story. You go west on 44th Street in New York City, and you turn in at number 59, and you can lose yourself in another century. There in the shadow of Times Square, in the oak-paneled lobby of the smallish, oldish Algonquin Hotel, things still are as they once were, when the literary giants and the movie land luminaries of the 20s would stay nowhere else. If much of the rest of mid-city New York has turned to glass and steel or to decay, the hiding place of the stars retains the flavor of an English country inn. An architectural harlot cannot age gracefully. Inevitably, she must try to hide behind increasing layers of paint. The Algonquin Hotel for 75 years, like a fine meerschaum pipe, has mellowed without aging. The tradition began with the hotel's first owner, Frank Case. Because he liked and catered to actors and writers and newspaper byliners, the Algonquin became a home or a hangout for the likes of Sinclair Lewis and Bennett Cerf, O.O. McIntyre and Haywood Brune, Franklin P. Adams, and Will Rogers. Frank Case catered carefully to the individual tastes of his frequently eccentric clientele. Georgie Jessel's breakfast, peaches, and champagne. Or if Noel Coward, busily writing, needed a world almanac at four in the morning, Ben Heck liked music in his bed and writing room. Sir Lawrence Olivier liked unsalted nuts. The lobby of the Algonquin was and is a lounging area where worn-out chairs are substituted only when the new one has been made to appear old. A pet cat strolls in and out snoopervising, and there are dining tables and one special round table where Wolcott and Nathan and Mencken matched wits. The New Yorker magazine was born at that table. In the Rose Room, Tallulah Bankhead and Helen Hayes and Gertrude Lawrence. In the years since, the Algonquin has modernized inconspicuously. Some suites are air-conditioned inobtrusively. Coded cards replace door keys. Smoke alarms are discreetly disguised. It remains modest and moderately priced by New York standards. And so after 75 years, the hotel still hosts the interesting people. Only the names have been changed. Henry Kissinger, Andy Warhol, Peter Ustinov. The Godfather was written in room 434. And if Fritz Lowe of Lerner and Lowe wants to write all night, the adjacent rooms are kept empty, so he'll be undisturbed. During the political convention, only the Algonquin was not sold out, purposely reserving its rooms for its friends. Frank Case is dead. Frank Case, who hosted the names you know for a quarter century, died in 1946. And when the newspapers printed his obituary, they also printed an obituary for his beloved hotel. Prematurely. Why the hotel did not die is the rest of the story. Once upon a honeymoon in 1924, a young semi-pro baseball player from Charleston brought his bride to New York. She was a bright-eyed brunette Southern Belle. And one lunchtime in the lobby of the Algonquin, there were stars in the eyes of Ben Bodney's bride, Mary. Darling, she whispered, over there is B. Lilly from the Follies. And there was Irene Castle and Eddie Cantor and Douglas Fairbanks, Sr. And Mary said to her pink-cheeked Bush League ballplayer husband, Ben, when we get rich, buy me this hotel and let's keep it just as it is, always. And he did. And he did. And it's hers. And now, you know the rest of the story. This is the part of the show where I talk about my favorite thing of the week. And my favorite things this week are vintage ceramic Christmas trees. My mom was really into ceramics back in the 70s when I was small, and one of the most memorable things that she made was a Christmas tree. You know those tabletop models that had the little colored peg bulbs that light up? Well, I'm not sure what happened to our tree, but suddenly they're really popular again. From what I could find out about their history, They first became available in the 1940s, but they really became popular in the 1970s. Now they're back, and guess what? I have a new one on the way. The Vermont Country Store has a pretty 18-inch one in their catalog, and after thinking about this for a few weeks, I decided to take the plunge and make the order. It should arrive just before Thanksgiving, which is when I start decorating for the holidays, so the timing is perfect. These trees are colorful, they're festive, 
and they're a sweet little reminder of Christmas's past. That's why ceramic Christmas trees are my favorite things of the week. And now it's time to say sweet dreams. So pull up the covers and rest easy. Yes, another work week is on the way, but it won't be so bad. As always, Friday will be here before we know it. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Bye.